Just a little friendly reminder out there to all you listeners, make sure to subscribe to the National Land Realty Podcast. No matter what platform you use, there is a subscribe button. Make sure to click that. That's how we measure our success and measure the value that we bring to the table. Welcome to episode number 74 for the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Ramsey Russell is a forester, a wildlife biologist, a graduate of Mississippi State University, and just happens to be one of the best-known personalities in the world of duck hunting. Ramsey is the owner of GetDucks.com. He answers to monikers such as the Christopher Columbus of duck hunting, as well as the Pied Piper of duck hunters. Ramsey Russell has also recently signed on as an agent with National Land Realty to share his passion for duck hunting with those seeking to sell and acquire land for the purpose of waterfowl hunting. We caught up with Ramsey in the middle of his 200 plus per day year odyssey of worldwide duck hunting for a very special Christmas Eve interview. This is a conversation about his newest adventure in land. Now sit back and enjoy. All right, so I am sitting here today. We're uh, we're we're on the threshold of Christmas here, and I'm talking with the uh, the owner of GetDucks.com, Ramsey Russell. Ramsey, you were recognized worldwide uh, for for your duck hunting pursuits, for your brand with GetDucks.com. You also have a background in biology with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and a background in forestry, which I I think it's lost in the shuffle with all the duck pursuits. But uh, you have just kind of made this move and joined up with National Land Realty as an agent. Uh, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about your background and and just sort of how did we get from from where you started to here, which I realize spans what did you say around twenty years? So yeah. uh, I don't I don't want to make you paraphrase paraphrase twenty years, but uh, you know how how did you get this whole thing started up and and what made you get decided to, to look at real estate? Matt, thanks for having me this morning. Uh, we we are meeting on. Christmas Eve morning because I've been traveling extensively and I, I appreciate you uh, making time to have me on this morning. Um, and I'm proud to be a part of National Land Realty. It's been a long time coming. Uh, to sum up 20 years, very, very briefly, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. That, that's just kind of my, that's my guide in life philosophies. When you come to, to the road, take it. When I, when I eventually, not, not right out of high school, but when I eventually got into college, all I really wanted to do was make the world a better place to be a wildlife biologist, to, to work in natural resources and, and make the world a better place. And I, and I, I went to college, uh, ended up getting a master's degree in forestry, an undergraduate in wildlife management from uh, Mississippi State University and got a job with the federal government, first with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, then the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And I don't know, 16 years into it, uh, an opportunity presented to it. I came to a fork in the road, a uh, little little side gig, little side hustle I had been doing. It just, it just, boom, it was time to make a decision. Came to a fork in the road and I took it. I left federal government and began to do what everybody said I could not do that could not be done. I began to sell 
duck hunts for a living. That that little opportunity presented itself. I had gotten out of grad school, gotten a job, my first position with uh, the federal government, had a little bit of money, not a lot, and had always wanted to go to Canada to hunt waterfowl. It's just, I just want to go shoot some geese, migratory geese and ducks up in Canada and bought a hunt from a hunting consultant. And it was the uh, a disaster of a hunt that started with a <laughs> inebriated duck guide showing up an hour and a half uh, after after shooting time, and it went downhill from there. And I, the following year, not to be deterred by a bad hunt, I started doing my own research, and I found another hunt up in Alberta. Went up there, had a wonderful time. Took some more friends up there. The second year, had a, another great time. By the third year, the number of people kind of following us up there had grown significantly. And the outfitter and his staff were kind of out in the garage. That's where they staged and got their decoys and ammo and got all their gear sorted and drank beer in the afternoons. And they said, Randy, come drink a beer with us. And I never will forget this outfitter telling me he wanted me a, to be a, his booking agent. And I go, what in the hell is a booking agent, Jeff? I'm a, I'm a forester with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And he said, no, no, here's how it works. He says, you know, uh, you've brought us 25 clients this year and you did it without even trying. So why don't why don't you let us monetize this relationship? Why don't you help organize these these people at large and steer them our way? And to do so, this you can understand, man. This this was a this was late nineties, early thousands, and uh, the world was a whole lot different place back then than it is now in terms of in terms of online connectivity. We had chat rooms, you know, back in the day. But we didn't have social media. And I had this idea, well, how do I, how do I reach more people? And it, it was just, uh, I came up with this idea because I was doing some habitat consulting on the side also, uh, writing, and I was writing baseline reports for conservation easements. I said, well, I might as well hang a shingle on the WWW. And I came up with the, the name brand getducks.com. It was a homemade web page that a buddy of mine knew enough to build, you know, three or four little pages within this space uh, on getducks.com. And one page was consulting and one page was this Alberta goose hunt. And I, I never dreamed that, you know, several years later, uh, seven or eight years later, it would hit such a fevered pitch that I would need to, I would need to make a decision whether I wanted to continue on with the remainder of my federal government career or do this full time. But one thing I did learn, Mac, is, Anything you're going to dedicate yourself to, you've got to dedicate yourself 110%. You cannot, I could not do get ducks full time while I had a federal government job. And I, I could not really do a great federal government job while I had get ducks in the loom. So I had, I came to that fork in the road and I took it. I said, you know, truth of the matter is my personality such, I'd rather work for myself anyway. So how many outfitters do you work with now with GetDucks.com? Well, it, it's grown quite a bit. We're, we're on six continents, uh, probably, probably about 20 outfitters internationally. Uh, and then another 25 or 30 throughout the United States under a little bit different platform. Back in the day, uh, back in the day, I would, I would book, uh, I'd work with an outfitter in Oklahoma. And you'd call me and I'd set you up with his calendar. We'd send you over there and take care of everything, send invoices you could call us, do everything. And uh and, and the world it just got too big, too fast paced. And 
as the internet grew and things got bigger, um, it just didn't work for us to spend that much time. You know, we're there's too many dark alleys and blind corners on going to a foreign country, be it Azerbaijan or Argentina or Mexico or anywhere else. Um, and in the United States and Canada, it's really more of an introduction to the right guy. Does that make sense? Because think about mm-hmm. this, the internet has gotten so big, anybody can Google anything, can find anything on Google. And in fact, I heard an interesting statistic one time that if you have a smartphone in your with connectivity in your pocket right now, you have got more information at your fingertips than George W. Bush did the day he was sworn into office. I mean, can you imagine the most powerful man in the world? Wouldn't you think he could snap his fingers and get an answer to something? You've got that information in your fingertips right now. So why in the heck? Uh, do you need somebody like Ramsey Russell to, to go to Arkansas or to go to Oklahoma or to go to Argentina? Well, you can find that information online. You need that information because the flip side of it is anybody can be anything on the Internet. And 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 working with somebody that knows what they're talking about, that has been there, that, that, that has not only been on this particular hunt, but can compare that hunt to hundreds more to know that it's the best, to know that they're going to achieve and do that the result's going to be what – what the what the uh, end user wants it to be, that that's the kind of the truth in advertising, the credibility part that comes into, and that that's how we developed. And so we've got getducks.com now for the international side. Call Ramsey, book a trip. We take care of everything. You just write the check, show up, and go have fun, have a trip of a lifetime. But on the on the U.S. and Canadian side, uh, we have used the same model, same principle to find and work with the right people. Internationally, we do it domestically also, and but you contact them directly. So it is a little bit of it, it's just integrating their brand into our own as an effective way of marketing. Yeah. And how many hunts do you facilitate per year on average? Oh gosh, I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> Somebody asked me one time, how, and, and my, my wife, look, she's the brains of the operation when it comes to invoices. And, you know, we, we all need smart people. You know, we all need to be surrounded by smart people. She She's much, much smarter. And I usually tell people she's the brains and I'm the good looks, but anybody, anybody seen a picture of me knows better. And uh, she's both, but, but it's, uh, it, I have no idea. Thousands, thousands of hunts a year, thousands of hunts a year we facilitate. So you've made, you've made a business on meeting people's expectations. We, and- we made a business on, on meeting people's expectations, Mike. You know, a, a lot of people, and it's been a learn. I'm just a dumb forester and wildlife biologist. I, I don't have a marketing degree. And it's like my, one of my close friends, the late Ian Munn, uh, he was a professor of mine at Mississippi State University. We ended up hunting together for 30 years. I busted his curve, you know, in, in his class he taught, but he he didn't hold it against me. We were friends anyway. <laughs> and uh, second second father to my own children and uh, recently recently passed. But he told me one time, we were in the duck blind solving world problems, and he said, you know, Ramsey, probably the biggest asset you've got is the fact that you did not get a marketing degree. But Because when you, when you get a degree, like a marketing degree, you leave college with this little preconceived toolbox and you open it up and you reach here and take this one and take this one and take this one. You begin to market. I didn't have that toolbox, man. I had, I, had, I grabbed a five gallon bucket, started putting what, what I learned the hard way into it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so I just kind of developed my own little marketing brand, my own little truth in advertising. I mean, from, from chat rooms to web pages, social media, podcast, 
print ads. I mean, it just it just kept kept going on and on. And I, you know, the main most thing I got out of college, I learned <clears throat> twenty years later. I learned a lot about habitat, a lot about forestry. But what I really learned was how to complete deadlines, to stay on time. And I, and I learned because for a dummy, uh, I got I got kind of toward the top of my class with a ability to for reading and uh, oral presentation type stuff. Those communication skills is what that's how I survived college. And, uh, and and I was able to put it to use working for myself. When when we think about one of the things I learned first and foremost, you know, I would have told you 25, 30 years ago that our logo. Um, which is very distinctive, uh, that our logo, getducks.com logo, that was my brand. That, that's the way I've always thought. It. You know, if we think of Coca-Cola or some major brand, you, think, you immediately think of that logo. That's their brand. No, that's not your brand. Your brand is your reputation. Your brand is how you consistently do for your customers. And, and that's, that, over time, it becomes credible. That, it follows you, and you can't shrug it. You know what I'm saying? If, if you continue to do bad, you're going to have a bad reputation. If you continue to do your best, and we always say, you know, we're good. We're not God. I can't make planes fly. I can't make migrations start starting to fly south. I can't make ice thaw. But we control the controllables. And after a long time in this business, Mac, it, it, it paid off. I'm, you know, there's, there's parts of me that doubt I should, I should have gone for something other than marketing as well. It's, it's not, it's, it's a terrifying degree actually. But I mean, but the point that you're making though, I think is a great point is, is one of the most dangerous things that you can have is to think that you have all the answers. And when you come out oh, with no. a degree in something, you really do think you, you, you hit the world running and you're like, oh, I got this degree. I know what I'm talking about. No, you don't. You're going to fall on your face. And if you don't learn, and if you're not curious, you won't grow. And, and you'll never know. You just have what a book taught you. And it's, it's sort of that when you come in cold to a new topic area, you're able to look at it from that perspective. Like I have things to learn. And, and then, but you also have sort of your innate lessons that you, you sort of have there and you're able to apply and you're able to see truth rather than what textbooks had told you. And so there's a blindness that you have. And, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. We're, we're always learning. And when we, when we quit trying to learn, we fail. And that's just, you know, the world, the, the, the universe is dynamic. The universe is always changing. And to put it in duck hunter terms, and I know a lot of y'all don't duck hunt, but put it in duck hunter terms, you know, duck hunting with the decoys and the calling and knowing the habitat and being in a wetland and working with the wind and, and the different species, and let's say matters, because they wrote, they wrote the playbook on, on how, to, how to duck hunt. It, it, it's always changing. In some respect, it's a lot like playing baseball. Man, whether you're sitting on the on the on the on the uh, sitting in Wrigley Field or sitting in the backyard throwing a baseball to your daddy, it's all the same. Man, baseball is a pretty fundamental skill. The, the the stakes go up and all, but still, it's a pretty fundamental sport. But it ain't. You know what I'm saying? You go you go to you go to different playing fields and different things. You start traveling around and working. There's always these curveballs, you know. And and you've got to you've got to always be learning, always figuring it out, always applying the nuances to consistently kill ducks. And and I would say in maybe real estate terms, it's it's no differently. Uh each property is unique on the principles of real estate. It is it, it, it property's uniqueness. Well, 
you know, a, a, a client or that's looking to buy a piece of property, he's unique too. And, and and you've got to you've got to always be figuring out, you know, what he wants and reconciling it with what this you the uniqueness of this property so that you can put peanut butter and chocolate together, right? Yeah. And so, you know, on that on that count, uh you know, going to going through the conversation here on the real estate, um, like I was saying before, your background is in ecology. Your background is in biology. You have a background that sort of built a brain that looks at the land around what you're doing and is constantly analyzing, you know, what, what what's the area you're in? Is this a good duck hunting area? What is this going to, is this going to fulfill the needs of somebody who wants to duck hunt? Is this going to bring in the right atmosphere that I'm, I'm looking to hunt? Is this going to bring in the right, like you're looking at those things consistently tell me what tell me what does go through your head where, where you know when, when you are looking at land and you know how does this sort of build the career that that or you know i'm not going to say total career you know you're moving into it um and you have getducks.com so i don't want to put you in a position of, of living two lives here but you're you're doing this now um how's how's how are you constructing things and how are you analyzing things as you go into this and you kind of move forward in the real estate? Man, one step at a time. It, that, that's <laughs> all I've done. That's all I've done for the last 20 years is just get up in the morning and take one step at a time in whichever direction, coming back to that fork in the road example that, that I choose to move. You know, whether I'm in Australia or Azerbaijan or Argentina or Arkansas, a lot of my days start off putting on waders and stepping off into a duck hole. And 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 you can't not look at, okay, uh, here's what the habitat is. Here's what the vegetation community is. Here's, here's why the ducks are going to come in and utilize this habitat, when they're going to come in and utilize it, if they're going to come in and utilize it. And you see a lot of similarities around the world. You see a lot of plants that are probably the same genus. I mean, it, it's just duck land is duck land, right? But, but it may be for feed, it may be for cover, it may be uh, some other uh, life requirement that waterfowl are using. Same could be said for white-tailed deer, bobwhite quail, or anything, any of the other game species we're talking about. And so, so when I step off into a new part of the world, I can't not put it in this little algorithm of, of what constitutes good duck land. Uh, but over the years, increasingly, uh, a lot of our clients have reached out to me and said, Ramsey, uh, as someone that's traveled all over the United States, hunting ducks is all over the world. If if you were to to buy some land, if you were if you were to have some money and, and want to really buy some good duck land, where where in the United States would you go? Do you know any property? What am I looking for with this budget? What what kind of habitat do I want? If this is my desired output to include uh, migratory birds or white-tailed deer, what, where should I go and what should I do? Because, you know, 50 states, you can hunt in 49 of them, and not all of them are created equal. And uh, and I know there's some there's still some vibrant and major flyways. There's still some real keystone areas around the United States that for a, for a man that has, and, um, 
has the time and the money to spend, it 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 would it would behoove him to focus on. You know, I I would not, for example, and I'm not picking on nobody in this state, but I would not choose to put a whole lot of money in West Virginia if, if I wanted a really, really good waterfowl hunting. I would choose to go uh, somewhere out in the Midwest, the Pacific Flyway or the Upper Mississippi Flyway and and find me a good property. And, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of these guys that have got the disposable income to buy good duck land, they also want it to earn. So it may, it may be some form of timber revenue. It may be some other stream. It could be uh, carbon. It could be, it could be farming. There, there's other ways they can generate income. And, you know, I just, I had, I had entertained when I was very young before college, I had entertained the idea of getting a real estate license, but hindsight 2020, I don't think a 19, 20 year old kid belongs in a real estate, you know, selling real estate. Who trusts a 19, 20 year old kid? You know what I'm saying? All I trust to them is, uh, I'll have fries with that order, sir. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's really all I expect <laughs> a 19 year old kid is to put, get, get my order right, you know, at a drive by window. And, and, you know, life and kids and career just came on. But here I come back full circle. You know what I'm saying? And, and the opportunity to work with the talent and the resources on a on a national platform that National Land Realty brings. Hey, there's some good stuff here in Mississippi. There's, there's some great duck lands where I'm licensed here in the state of Mississippi. But there's a whole lot more opportunity elsewhere, too. And 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 bringing bringing the resources, the the client database that I've got, the uh, the reputation that I've got to the team to start with National Land Realty, and be, begin to help people find the right part of the land in their part of the world or in another part of the world is is an exciting opportunity for me. Yeah. So you started your career out working with land and working with resources and ecology, and then. It, it drifted into this, you know, into the hunting path. And, and you're right. You have kind of come full circle, haven't you? It's, you're right. Yeah, I've come full circle. And, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take back. Um, you know, a lot of people look and maybe scoff even or, or look down on working for the federal government. But I learned so much about the federal government programs, about, about people. Because when I, when I was working for U.S. Department of Agriculture, I worked, uh, I covered 24 counties in the state of Mississippi. And, and I interacted with the landowners that, that had, you know, various out, had various objectives. Uh, maybe they were agricultural producers or timber producers, but they also wanted some wildlife component. And they wanted to make use of some of the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture programs. But, but just going off and meeting with them and getting a, 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 a real understanding that I think a lot of people look at land as an asset that makes money or something. You know, okay, that, that's a fair way of looking at land. Good Lord ain't making no more of it, right? Golly, the things I really saw is is the innate and emotional connection to land, to to that tree or to that resource. And and when I when I have when people come and, and have come up to me in the past and say, I want to buy some good duck land. Okay, they, they want to shoot ducks. They want to have a good quality place to go and recreate with their families or their friends. But but I know I know there's more to that. They want they want a sense of home, a sense of place, somewhere they can connect to. And I'll tell you the story, and I hope it doesn't get me too far off track. But but after Hurricane Katrina, 
Uh, and this really hit home as a last memory. This this would have taken place. Um, gosh, how long how long ago was Katrina? Twenty years ago. It's a long time ago. Moving on that time now, yeah, yeah. And boy, uh, Bush Jr. threw a lot of money out on the streets and down timber, uh, down timber finances. So if you and, and it, it, that, that hurricane hit the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, went up to about an hour and a half south of here near Hattiesburg, took a turn out towards Alabama and left a lot of down timber in its wake. Unbelievable. Some of these heavily thinned pine plantations just, just got demolished. And we were we were going out and meeting with a lot of landowners and assessing their properties and, and verifying their damage and getting them set up with some of this relief. And we went up to this little old bitty property over in East Mississippi, and the man had a hardwood bottom down below his house, and it was just all that timber was laying over. Now, look, he'd had a, a bunch of these uh, timber barons from Arkansas and around. He'd come in and offered them salvage prices for the for the fallen timber, $25 a ton or something, and he was furious. Boy, he was furious. He was upset. He was red in the face, and, and I'm trying to be calm. And, you know, well, you know, $25 a ton. It wasn't a lot of really desirable hardwoods he had there in the bottom. Anyway, it was old growth and doty and everything else. I said, you know, if you can write the contract good and get them to come in and rebuild some of these roads and do this and do that. And plus we come in and offer you some, uh, some compensation. Hey, make, 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 uh, make the best of it. And I was, I was looking at something in my, my clipboard and I heard his voice crack. And he said, boy, you see that beach tree down there in the bottom laying on the side? I go, yes, sir. And now, now the man's got tears running down his eyes. He said, I sat in my papa's lap and I killed my first squirrel right there under that tree. I said, yes, sir. And he said, and my son sat in my lap and killed his first squirrel. And my grandson sat in my lap and killed his, his first squirrel. And ain't no amount of money you and the timber barons bring in here is going to ever bring that tree back. And my whole point telling that long, sad story was the fact that, you know, the, the spiritual connection that man had to a beech tree sitting on his property. And I think a lot of a lot of us listening, and certainly a lot of people that come into our office looking for a piece of property, that's what they want. They want something that they can introduce. They can they can relive their childhoods. They can enjoy the best days of their life, and they can bring their kids and future generations into it. And so I think it's important we understand that 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 beyond the dollars and the cents, people people want to connect to their little mark in this world, their little spot, their little happy place in this world. And again, working you know, borrowing from what my experiences are, working with duck hunters, working with hunters, working with the land, now able to work with a uh, a killer staff of agents throughout the United States. I want to help people find that that happy spot. That makes a lot of sense too. And then, you know, there's also the side that, you know, you do travel a lot it would be nice to settle in a little bit. Right. <laughs> oh, you better believe it, man. It, it's, uh, I'm, I'm 50, 57 going on 58 years old. Feel, feel like I'm a hundred. The road will just wear you out. You know, speaking of which I have, I have, I have seen a lot of world Mac. I have been blessed to go and see and experiment and experience a lot of wetlands around the world. Some of the some of the very best wetlands in the world to include Pakistan. When you think of Pakistan, you think of those rocky outcroppings and like you see on TV for Afghanistan. But running right through the middle of Pakistan is the Indus River Valley, 
and you get up close to it, and you better believe it's a it's a major artery of migratory and waterfowl in that part of the world. Um, but but when the pandemic hit, the world shut down. I couldn't, and I would have done anything. I would I would have welded a, a three foot long rainbow unicorn horn onto my forehead to step on a plane and go somewhere. I was ready to roll. Uh, coming home, coming home right before the pandemic hit in. February or March of 2020, we had come back from Azerbaijan. We had been hunting eight miles from Iran. They were the first country to shut their borders down because of whatever this cootie going around, this thing in the news was, you know, they were calling it and uh, came home. And I was going to be home for two months, which would have been the longest consecutive stretch of time in five years. And I ended up spending a year and a half sitting at home. And the state borders opened first, and and I just realized, you know, much as I had seen and done around the world, I had only hunted 32 states, had only waterfowl hunted 32 states. Well, the borders are closed. Why don't I jump around and, and pick up some of these other states? And easier said than done, but I, I lack I lack hunting waterfowl or killing waterfowl only in West Virginia and Virginia now. This year, I picked up Oregon and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was tough, and uh now next year I'll jump out and hunt ducks in West Virginia and Virginia, and then I've got to pick up about uh, British Columbia and then some of the eastern eastern Canadian provinces. And and I I just it's not about trigger pulling just shooting ducks right. It's it's about uh, seeing an experience in duck hunting culture, which which always goes back to people. I've got a small little game room with a bunch of dead ducks mounted all over that thing. Too many of them. And and I and I tell people I don't collect species, I don't collect ducks. And it's like this, you know, I'll somebody will point to something, well, that's a red crested poacher from Azerbaijan, or that's a bar headed goose from Mongolia. But it's funny if I start telling you a story about any duck or species in that game room, it always comes down to the people in the place and, and what I experienced there. I was just going to say, you, you you said something before we went live here and you were talking about sitting in a duck stand and solving world problems. And I always kind of refer to that scenario because, you know, I do a lot of fly fishing, a lot of hunting. And, and it's that scenario that is almost better than anything else you experience when you're going out. It's like and I always call it just telling lies and solving problems. And like you have those moments. It's the drive out. It's this, when, especially when the conditions are terrible and, and you, you have those moments of levity where you're not just focused on what is happening in front of you, where you're, you, you kind of zoom out and you look at the scenery and you do, you just sit around, tell a lie, solve problems. And, and it's, you remember those kind of things. Like if you have, a, you know, if you have an artifact that you brought back from a hunt or something like that, you bring in a story and you have that story preserved on your wall and it reminds you when you look at it. Stories. I, I'm. I'm. I love. I love the stories. I love all the stories I encounter with it. With coming out of people's mouth or the things they show me, or walking into museums. I, if I've got the time, I never pass up a museum. And I'm not like my wife that'll go through and spend 42 days reading every every nook and cranny of it. I just do a walkthrough. And where people see museums, and I think this is parallel to land and to duck hunting. Uh, people. A lot of people consider museums to be a collection of stuff, but it's not. They're collections of stories. And 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 I just as, as a storyteller, be our pod, own podcast and everything else, I love to I love to go through museums. And and usually I can find 
I can find people uh, in those museums to tell some of those stories. Most recently, I was out in Cody, Wyoming, and <clears throat> met a guy. Met a guy. I had not seen the movie Jeremiah Johnson. In fact, I was with some thirty-year-old that didn't know who Jeremiah Johnson was, and I said, "Are you American? How do you not know who, Jer <laughs> know who Jeremiah Johnson is? Are you serious? Are y'all messing with me? I thought they were kids messing with me." They go, "No, we never heard of him." Well, I met I met a, a, a museum guy that is. Uh, who was inspired into a historical career, having seen the movie in 1972, and is now one of the foremost experts on Liver Eating Johnson. I was just going to say uh, Liver Eating yeah. Johnson or John Johnson, right? Yeah, I came, I came home and watched the movie twice since since that interview, and uh, and, and and learned through through learned through an interview about about quote the real Jeremiah Johnson. His name wasn't Jeremiah, probably wasn't Johnson. And and he most resembled uh, the character Dale Gu than, than than Robert Redford, you know. But anyway, I just I love to hear these stories and get a sense of cultural context. Side note: I I I picked up the book Liver Eating Johnson and went through that. And then uh, the last time I took my son deer hunting this last year, actually just just this last fall, and uh, that was our that was our driving thing was I picked up the audio book and we drove around the mountains listening to the story. And it's legends, right? It's not exactly like the most historically accurate, but it was fun. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of shift here. You you spoke to reputation and, uh, you know, in, in the, when you brought it up, it was sort of in respect to the reputation that you've built. And, and I wanted to ask you about that, sort of how, how have you, that, that you, you've built a business based on it, right? I mean, that's, that's this entire thing. This entire getducks.com is built on the back of your reputation. Yeah. How have you cultivated that? And, and what is sort of the important aspects of building that reputation as, and because that carries forward, right? You, you're, you're bringing that same reputation to a, a new business channel. And, and, you know, how have, how have you built what you have so far and, and what matters in, in terms of building that? You know, I think, I think a lot of people think about life and business in terms of frying fish myself too, when I was younger, you know, I thought I could just jump out and go fry fish and serve everybody. Frying fish doesn't, it may take me longer to get the grease hot than it does to cook for 30 people. It's, quick, it's a quick process, but I really think that in terms of building business, building a life, building a reputation, building a modicum of, of credibility, it's more like cooking a gumbo. You know, I, I said earlier about getting up every day and just taking one step forward and getting one thing done. And and if you if you do right and do good and do right by people, that is your brand. Your brand is your promise to your consumer. It is, it is how you treat people and you do your best. It, it, it's not your logo. It is, it is how you treat people. And, and it's your promise to the consumer. And I just don't believe that can be built overnight. At least in my instance, I've learned it can't be built overnight. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of experienced people in the duck hunting world uh, that have done and seen uh, some things I haven't seen. That's fine. But I've seen a lot. I've done a lot. And over a period of time, uh, the chickens just kind of sort of came home to roost. But but at the end of the day, uh, like I had somebody tell me in a text message recently, back in September, you know, her goal was to be where I am 
this time next year in term in terms of uh, the contact and the travel and the duck hunting and maybe even uh, the monetization of it all. And I just told her, well, you're a better person than I am because it took me 20 years. It took me 20 years of getting up every single day and doing the right thing and doing the best I can. Um, which not, that may not be the best anybody can do, but it's the best I can do. And I just continue to do the very best I can by my consumers, by uh, the, the marketing and the brand awareness and, and phone call to phone call, hunt to hunt, transacting to transacting, doing the very best I can to deliver the very best I can and to live up to the promises, uh, whether real or implied, that I have, I have specified. What's your favorite part about the whole process of going into new land? And I, I mean, you know, the going into a new location, you know, what's the, what's in, is it the, is it the solving the problem? Is it the success at the end? Is it, you talked about walking in and that first kind of look, like you got to go stand in the water a little bit. And, and for me, because it, in, in my in, in my experience, it's that it, it's that like it's that it's the first you go and you put your toes in and you get that first smell and and you sort of just start getting the first layout of like what am I going to do here? It's just but, the not knowing. That's the whole challenge is the not knowing. You know, <clears throat> there was a time in my life I thought there was a top to the mountain, there was a summit. You know, it's like I think when you're young and you're getting out into things. We all want to be at the summit and there is no summit. You just keep going. You keep learning. You keep, you keep walking. You keep moving forward. You keep taking those steps. I'm reminded of the time we went to Mongolia and I'm thinking, well, heck, if I don't go hunting Mongolia, it's just North of China. I ought to, I ought to, I ought to stop over in China for a few days. And uh, I like Chinese food. I thought, but I want to go to the wall of China that was built to keep the, the Genghis Khan Mongolese army out of China. I said, man, I'll give that some real context. And uh, we showed up in China, and it was, whew, what an experience. I found out I do not, in fact, like real Chinese food. Um, <laughs> it was not like you find in the restaurants, huh? <laughs> no, it was it was not a spring roll from uh, from your local China buffet, I can tell you. We went, we went to one restaurant. We went to one restaurant. Mary Wayne was her name, our tour guide. And she just went on and on and on about this pork dinner we were going to have. And they brought it. And the first bite tasted like that old brown stink bait we used to use when we were kids. Smells. And I and I um, took a swig of my Coca-Cola and said, well, maybe I just got a bad bite. And I took another bite and it tasted the same as the first. And I pushed my plate away and ordered another Coca-Cola for lunch. I did find some Peking duck about a block from the hotel and, and ended, up, ended up living on Peking duck for 72 hours. But we eventually went out to the wall of China and on on the Internet pictures and stuff, I was kind of in, envisioning a flight of stairs and then a long top of the wall cobblestone. But it's not. It, it, it is however long that wall is. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to guesstimate it's 3,500 miles long. It is steps. It is stairs the entire way. And we stopped at the spot and we look up. And I'm glad I didn't wear my Crocs. I'm glad I had on hiking boots. and way up the hill and, and the steps go from six inches to three feet. You know, they were just built by little Chinese peasants a thousand something years ago. And it's just, it's just uh, like mountain climbing, but it looks like stairs. And I said, Mary, how far are we going? She goes to the top. And I said, up there where that guard station is, she goes, well, that's, that's the start. 
So we hiked and huffed and puffed and got up to that first guard station. And from there, you can see the next three. And so we kept going, went to the second guard station, the third guard station, and the fourth guard station. And there was one more fifth who went to the fifth. Well, by then, I didn't want to climb back down. I wanted to keep on walking the loop. My point being, the, the top is never what you think it is. It, it, it's boundless. You just keep on going. We could have walked that thing for 3,500 more miles if we wanted to. And and that's kind of sort of how I got in this business, kind of sort of how I approach life. It's like old Forrest Gump. You know, he ran it in the driveway. If you're going to go in the driveway, might as well go to town. Might as well go across town. Might as well cross the county. Next thing you know, you're running back and forth across the United States. There is no top. There is no end unless you let there be. And that's that's ceilings. That's boundaries. I don't like that. I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a stick and carrot kind of guy. I just want to keep on chasing. And that's what excites me so much about seeing something new. Well, this is new. This is fresh. I don't know what I'm getting into. Could be good, could be bad, but it's going to be fun. And I'm I'm really right now, uh, green as a gourd, getting into national land realty. I'm excited. You know what I'm saying? There, there's a lot to learn and a lot, to, a lot of people to meet. There's a whole lot to, uh, it's going to take to get my feet up under me and do this thing right. But that's going to be that's going to be the challenge. Is what's going to be so fun about it. I think one of the good things that you have is uh, you, knowing, knowing Ronnie Richardson, our CEO, for as long as you have. I don't think <laughs> probably a I don't hold that again. I was gonna say I don't think there's a better resource to be able to lean on for questions and stuff than that guy because it, it was when I first started talking to him. You know, he's a new CEO and he and he he comes in and uh, you, you just you're trying to get you're trying to feel somebody out. And, and like, okay, well, what's, what's, what's your personality type? How do you look at things? And we started talking about just a certain scenario and he started talking about, you know, a tax conscious plan and like, well, what you should do is just shelter here and move this. And, and he had built this whole thing in his head in maybe 15 seconds. It just rattled out. And uh, his, his knowledge base with land is, is, is really great, but that's sort of, that's that's what you know where you're building to and you already have this base that that you know you're, you're talking about growing and learning and being green but yeah no you're not so green in this like you've been working with land for a very very long time i have but, been but it's the transactional side that's going to be the the next steps but you've been doing this stuff for a while and you've been working and, and it's not just looking at not just looking at land as it exists like you've been looking at land improvements how to make things better, the food types on it. Those are all things that are just staples of your career. And now you're able to do it for other people, which is a neat prospect, right? I'm, I'm imagining that it's a neat prospect. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, though. No, that's exactly right. You, you It's a it's a very, you know, I've, I've looked at it uh, on the baseline. You know, baseline reports that I, I spent a lot of my career doing were going on to properties that were fixed to be entered into a conservation easement, which is an amazing concept. and they required a baseline report, and that's what I was very, very good at, was putting together that 50 to 60-page document. It, it is just a snapshot of, of what that property is, where that property is, and what that property is in terms in, from the soil up, the soil, the water, the plants, the animals, and, and putting that thing together. And uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, doing that for the longest time. It's, it's what afforded me uh, the opportunity, the freedom to just walk away from a federal government career was having worked hard to do that. And, and I, I enjoy that. And I still, when I come onto a property, I find myself just looking at it that way. 
looking at it from a standpoint of an experienced duck hunter, looking at it from a standpoint of an experienced biologist, looking at it from a standpoint of an experienced forester, and um, and 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 putting putting together a puzzle as the buyer fits into it. And and I just I'm I'm very excited to be a part of this process. So I want to ask you some rapid fire questions. This long duck hunting, making a career out of duck hunting, is it still good? Do you still do? Do you still enjoy the the hunt? No, not not like I used to. I could say yes because I do enjoy duck hunting, but not like most people listening enjoy duck hunting. Most people have never hunted ducks two hundred days in a year. No. <laughs> No, they haven't. And they, they think they want to, but they don't. They, they, they you know? think they could and they think that they want to. But that is a like that. It's hard to quantify what kind of a grind that is. It's a grind. Let, let me let me tell you what. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you my just spitball. A year in the life of Ramsey Russell. Get is my year. Most people's year starts a week from now, January 1st. And I. My start September 1st. That's my annual new year. It's Labor Day weekend. I get back to my roots, come hell or high water. I'm going to go risk a heat stroke on a dove field to go shoot 15 doves at best with my kids. And and, and the one time this year I tried to tried to shrug it off, my kids called the old tradition card. Dad, you got to come out. We, we do it every year. We've done it every year. How <laughs> so we go to 115 degree dove field and get my dove. That's where it starts. Well, then come about September 9th or 10th, the blue wing teal season start opening. And probably about 10 years ago, Mississippi's a flyaway state. You know, the, the blue wings, we either got them or we don't. If we have them, they're just, they're just skipping on down to the Gulf Coast. And I'll, I'll start in Mississippi at camp. Win, lose, or draw, I'm going to give it a morning or two. And then I'm going to hopefully jump down to Louisiana, get down around Venice, and hunt with some friends, hunt with some clients for blue wing teal and chase them clear down to El Campo, Texas. Follow the migration south of I-10, clear down to Ampo, El Campo, Texas. That's about a 15-day stretch. Getting up every morning, getting out and swatting skeeters and fighting snakes and shooting blue wings and having a great time. I'm jumping that truck and I'm going to drive to Saskatchewan and meet some friends of mine. Uh, all the boys out there in Saskatchewan, all the locals call them newfies, whether they're from Nova Scotia, we chase snow geese. Then I jump around Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, back to Saskatchewan, jump around, jump around Ontario. And I'm hunting with friends and associates and outfitters and clients. Uh, this year, this year, for example, I was supposed to pick up British Columbia, British Columbia, did not make that. So I had to skip from skip British Columbia because I had to come back home to take care of some business. And Drove from Saskatchewan clear out to Washington State, hunted out on the Olympic Peninsula with some friends and clients, hunted on the on the other side of the Puget Sound with some friends and clients, flew to Australia for a week-long project we had uh, with SEI and some scientists to go to go collect some genetic data and do some hunting in some new country up in Northern Territories, came home, hunted Oregon, and pretty much bit off more than I can true thinking, well, it ain't been 34 hours. How hard can it be to get from Oregon to Mississippi in time for Thanksgiving. Buddy, let me tell you what. That 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 hurt. Well, I was home home for Thanksgiving, shot, shot some ducks from my kids, walked right into a management buck, shot a buck right off the bat. Uh, two days later, I was in Pennsylvania, Toronto. I drove over to it's a long haul from from uh, Toronto to Minnesota, 
out to Wyoming. Here I am at Christmas, and after Christmas, I'll, oh, I'll be home for three days after Christmas, go back to Australia to hunt Tasmania, come back in time to load the wagons, get out to Dallas Safari Club. My son's going to come pick up the trailer and take the stuff back to Mississippi. I'm going to hunt Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, come home in time for Safari Club International, and then we go to Azerbaijan on a hosted hunt, and through about mid-March, um, actually through late March, I'll, I'll be down in Mexico and Guatemala. Uh, get a month off unless something comes up. Get a month off, and then around May first, go to Argentina through July. Come home, go to go to uh, Netherlands with a with a team of clients, and go to Africa in August for two to four weeks. And then by the time I get home, we're we're back that open day of dove season. That's just a typical year in the life of Ramsey. That's uh that's a lot of plan time. Uh I do enjoy it though. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy it, but I think right. I enjoy it for different reasons. I get some I get something different out of the duck hunt than most duck hunters get out of it anymore. I was gonna say, yeah, it, you wouldn't do something like that if you didn't enjoy it, but it's like it does evolve. It's not that giddy you know, the, the, I finally got out for the weekend. You know, there, there's a feeling to that that is different than no. as much as you are. Um, wanted to ask you, do you still enjoy eating waterfowl after all? Absolutely. Yeah. Is Absolutely. That, is that, is and I eat plenty of it. I, I, you know, everybody's got their own recipe or when I show up, they want me to cook some of mine. What is and your I, favorite well, species and what is your favorite um, dish? <laughs> ah, gosh, that, that's hard to say. I, you can't beat a, a mallard or a green-winged teal. And it's funny how a green-winged teal is uh, in the Northern Hemisphere is a universal favorite. I've been in Russia. I've been in Azerbaijan. I've been uh, throughout the United States. And green-winged teal, that's just a, a great little bird to eat. I like mallards for one of my pocket recipes. Um, plucked, breast. Uh, Pan pan seared, tap the skin down. You start with a cool skillet, let that let that fat render three or four minutes. Flip it over, let it cook. Remove it from that pan, put it in the oven for about three or four minutes, and get a reduction going. I like bourbon butter and maybe some kind of jelly fig preserve or raspberry jalapeno. Get that all reducing. When I take the meat out of the oven and lay it on the counter to rest, I, I drizzle this on top and let it just kind of seep in. That's a good way to cook it. My pocket recipe is chicken fried. And I mean, it's so simple, but you'd be surprised at how many people around the United States and around the world don't have a concept of how to properly chicken fry duck. My buddy in Australia, like, we don't get it. It's not chicken, you know? And, you know I, I fed them chicken fried. I said, this chicken fried, just chicken fried goose steak. And they go, well, we don't understand. It's not chicken and it's not steak. I said, no, it's chicken fried. They don't understand that, but it's good. I'll make a Jezebel sauce or a dipping sauce to put it in, and that's just a good, easy way that you can get rid of any waterfowl that flies. And then I've got a standard gumbo. I just like I like gumbo, and uh, and I, you know everybody's gumbo is different. I make my gumbo, and I only make it once a year because I don't I don't start with a canned roux. I like to stand over the oven and get the roux just right, and it's only got three components. Normally, it's it's, it's lots and lots of ducks, uh, lots of good andouille sausage. And oysters, that's my gumbo. And I try to make enough that we can freeze it off and pull some out later. But there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good ways to eat duck. I was in Azerbaijan last year, and for those of y'all listening that actually know what a, a duck, a, a coot is, we pulled up to a wetland and they, they asked us to shoot the blackbirds. And I knew those people over there ate coots, one of their favorite birds. And uh, so we went out and shot coots. And 
they were going on and on about how good they were to eat. I'm like, no, nah, I'm, I'm 50 something years old. And we don't eat this stuff back home. Even the coon asses eat just the gizzards, right? And, uh, they, they, they cook those coots in a pretty fancy pilaf. That, and, and I, and I'm just like sitting there eating on my third help. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm in my late fifties and I've been not shooting coots all these years. But anyway, it, I, I do like ducks. I do like geese. I do love to eat them. One of my favorite goose species, hands down, is a snow goose. It's uh, We go to Canada and target them for months on end. For as long as they're there, we're targeting the white birds. And they're so fat and so succulent when they're on those grain fields in the fall and the spring. Uh, they're they're carbo-loading, and you'll, you'll fillet some of those breasts that, that are as marbled as Wagyu beef. And they're absolutely delicious. It's everybody's favorite thing to eat up on the Canadian prairie or, or the white geese. And to get down here for some reason everybody says, oh, the sky carp are not good to eat. And I say, uh uh-uh. they're better than anything out there on the on the plane. But anyway. I'm, say, I'm <laughs> sure you get asked this one plenty, but I, I gotta I gotta step into it. Favorite place to hunt. No, that that's 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 not fair. It's uh, <laughs> but but I can answer each it. one's I a different answer. experience. I realize it's it's it I, is, I can it's a nasty it. question. <laughs> I can answer it by saying with all sincerity and truth, my favorite hunt is the next one. You know, I'm I'm as I'm as excited to go back to Arkansas or back to Argentina or back to Oklahoma or to a new place I've never been. The next hunt is it, just. You know, the whole thing about duck hunting, um, and I think life in itself is just this optimism. You, you've got to be optimistic. Look, and this is a tough year. This, this duck season right now that we're in in North America, it's the, it's the duck season that winter forgot. There, there has been no weather. There's no snow cover from here to freaking Edmonton. It's 50 degrees, and the ducks aren't moving. So you've got to be optimistic to get up in the morning like I'm going to do and go out with my kids go duck hunting. You've got to be optimistic. But but really and truly, my, the, the next hunt I go on is my favorite duck hunt, hands down. That is, uh, that is a masterclass answer right there. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, um, man, it's Christmas Eve. I want to let you go and enjoy your family. Um, but I... You, you spoke to something there earlier uh, about the the pursuit of thinking that there's a pinnacle, and I, I was I was recently listening to a to a podcast. Uh, the, the guy that I know here locally started a podcast called Authority Optional, and it's this uh, leadership podcast. And they uh, one of the hosts there made it spoke to a quote, and and I was it just you reminded me of it, and and he was talking about how. Throughout history, people have always thought that that happiness was a destination that that I'm going to get somewhere and be happy that that I want to arrive at happiness like you were going to land there and stay and set up a set up a camp and hang out for a while. And and he said that, that, that that's the biggest mistake that people can make is thinking that you arrive at happiness. You get there somehow your brain gears up and, and you just I'm happy and now I'll be happy for the rest of my life. And and he said that, that, that what they've found is just through, you know, neurological research is that happiness is gained through process and it is a continuous process. And you engage in the act of happiness every day by continuing to pursue and grow and learn and not think that you have all the answers and think that, okay, what do I have to learn? What do I have to fix? 
And, and it's actually the days that you slip off that you don't engage in a growth pattern that you don't pursue that you don't try to learn that you become unhappy and it's when you stagnate that so it's it's this continuous process of kind of what you were talking about of climbing and not of arriving and and it's like and i see and you, you sort of follow that as a philosophy it seems that, that throughout your life of moving through jumping from from you know the fish and wildlife service to getducks.com and now here you arrive still growing and still pursuing into real estate and helping people acquire the land that they love and you spoke of that passion and it's it was it was just such an interesting sort of parallel to draw there as you spoke through these stories that i see that you you were engaged full on in the act of happiness and you gotta be i mean life short you know our, one of our mantras is life short get ducks and it and you no know, to a duck hunter that that means a lot go duck hunting be happy but it could be you know you could be golf it could be football it could be a next real estate transaction whatever else I, but i do know this to borrow from what you said it reminds me of something i i, I think i read on a meme this morning, there's, there's, there's nothing under the Christmas tree that's going to make you happy. You either show up happy when you're opening presents or you ain't going to be happy. And that, 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 that's just life in general. Nothing under that tree is going to make you happy. You've got to be happy. Agreed. Well, hey, Ramsey, I, like I said, man, it's Christmas Eve. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you very, very much. Oh, thank you, Mac. Let me, let me just say too, that for all these guys from natural land realty, listening i look forward to meeting y'all and to working with y'all i really do um i can't wait to meet every one of y'all personally and to work with y'all and anybody else listening that that uh want to talk about duck land give me a shout excellent you can reach out to ramsey russell you are licensed in i let you tell everybody I'm licensed in the state of Mississippi, but going to be working uh, in a referral capacity nationwide through the National Land Realty platform. There we go. Well, Ramsey, thank you very much. Merry Christmas. You too. Thank you. This concludes episode number 74 for the National Land Realty podcast with Ramsey Russell, the owner of GetDucks.com and newly signed land real estate agent with National Land Realty. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationallands.com. 